Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. As Congress and the President negotiate another spending bill to avoid a government shutdown, we look at some of the influencers behind the debates over the federal budget. If Congress can't pass a spending bill by January 19, the government will shut down, though a short-term extension of government spending authority seems likely to pass before the deadline. These month-to-month -month or year-to-year -year fights are a sideshow to the federal budget's long-term problems, debt and spending. Last year, the Congressional Budget Office projected that federal debt held by the public would rise from 77% of national economic output, known as gross domestic product, or GDP, to 150% of GDP by 2047. The CBO also projected that the drivers of rising debt would be spending on Social Security, federal health care programs like Medicare, and rising interest payments on the existing debt. Because these budget debates touch almost all areas of policy, countless interest groups actively seek to influence future federal spending. Government worker labor unions, like the American Federation of Government Employees, or AFGE, seek to continue the current path of spending and debt. On the other side, some reformers are fighting to change pension and spending policies for government employees. Mike, give us a little bit of the background of what's happening. So first, before we talk about the current debate, which comes from Congress doing its job in the way it's not supposed to do its job, uh, I'll briefly explain how it's supposed to work. Congress is supposed to pass 12 annual appropriations bills, which fund a section of the discretionary portion of the government, which is everything but Social Security and Medicare, basically. Uh, supposed to pass 12 of these bills. They're passed by both houses of Congress, signed by the president by October 1st. Now, when was the last time that that actually happened? 1997. <laughs> so, uh, so some in our audience were not alive. Some in our audience were probably not alive. I was in first or second grade <laughs> the last time that happened. Uh, so since 1998, because the uh, appropriations bills have generally not been passed, they've certainly not been passed on time, and they mostly haven't been passed at all, uh, Congress has operated under these continuing resolutions. Or CRs. Also known as CRs, which are stopgap funding authority measures that it passes in lieu of an appropriations bill. Uh, Congress does this pretty much regardless of whether the president and Congress are controlled by the same or opposite parties. Or Republicans or Democrats. Or Republicans or Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's not like you know, a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress you know, uh, President Obama and the Democratic Congress in 2009 didn't pass their appropriations bills. They all ran under CRs. Uh, obviously, President Trump and the Republican Congress right now running un running under CRs. Uh, George W. Bush got some appropriation, did some appropriating, proper appropriating in um, in his term, but in 2003 with the Republican Congress, nope. <laughs> so, uh, regardless of the alignment. Uh, Congress has uh, abdicated its responsibility to pass its appropriations bills on time, uh, and the president has gone along with presidents have gone along with the, with this uh, CR CR stuff. So, uh, because they didn't pass uh, appropriations bills for the fiscal year that began October first, uh, so the 2018 fiscal year, uh, the government has been funded under continuing resolutions, and the current continuing resolutions as we've been saying, expires January 19th. Now, what is one of the biggest obstacles uh, for Congress to actually pass these things? So the Senate has the, the filibuster rule, which means that if you want to pass legislation with a couple of very technical uh, 
exceptions under the reconciliation rule. If the Senate wants to pass legislation, it needs a 60-vote majority. So that means that you have to get both Republican, you know, with the exception of the, whatever it was, eight months between the seating of Al Franken in 2009 and the election of Scott Brown in uh, January 2010, when the Democrats had 60 votes. With the exception of that brief little window, you're going to need at least some members of the opposition party. Uh, Although I think I would, it's only fair to toss in virtually nothing of uh, significant controversy passed even during that window in spending or otherwise. Yeah, the the only you know that 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 was because that was all tied down by Obamacare rather than the Democrats passing their twelve appropriations bills yes. even to do Democrat stuff. Yes, or or say uh, card check for instance, or, yeah, which or, was uh, a uh, a labor bill, uh, a, well, when, a, a bill mean, that labor unions very much wanted, very and, very, very much wanted uh, to make it easier to organize, and I believe Blanche Lincoln, a de- then Democratic senator from Arkansas, ultimately shot it down. <laughs> Um, there was bipartisan opposition, not bipartisan support. But uh, oh, net neutrality. Just since that's in the I, news lately, that also did not pass, that, despite that being was high not, on the president's was agenda. Not, uh, was not advanced legislatively. Now everything went pen and phone. Um, but you know, ending the digression to pass the both the CRs and the appropriations bills, you need a sixty vote. You need sixty votes in the Senate, which means that the opposition party can hold it for leverage. And lo and behold, that is what's going on. Yep. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that there is, uh, it is possible in the Senate uh, to pass some monetary bills with, uh, with just a, uh, the 50-vote margin and, and escape the filibuster. Uh, but that's, and that's called the... Um, uh, the, reconcilia- the reconciliation rule. Yeah, and but um, but that has lots of complicated rules, which we won't go into. But the Senate rules are are labyrinthine, uh, to put it the, mildly. The the Senate doesn't know the rules of the Senate. They yes. have to hire somebody called a parliamentarian to tell the Senate what the rules of the Senate are. Yes, <laughs> and the other the while there are countless rules to that particular rule, uh, the most important one, I suppose, is that. The, uh, the legislation has to theoretically, highly theoretically, but theoretically, theoretically subject to various technical thing, you know, various technical calculations, and the Congress can semi overwrite it, which is what happened with the tax bill, which was passed under reconciliation. Uh, it has to be deficit neutral ish. Yes, it's, theoretically, it's not going to make a significant dent in revenues up or down. Um, and that is obviously not an easy thing to do if you're, uh, if you're trying to change, for instance, defense spending or entitlement spending. Okay, well, um, uh, speaking of defense and non-defense spending, uh, uh, talk, uh, tell us a bit about how those are currently figuring into this controversy. So several years ago, there was the, what was then President Obama and then Speaker John Boehner agreed to a deficit reduction, agreed to have a deficit reduction committee known as the Super Committee, and the super committee was supposed to come together, and Republicans and Democrats would agree on a certain package of spending cuts that would reduce the deficit. Uh, predictably, they didn't. But there was a poison, a poison pill that was supposed to motivate them to come to an agreement, which was which was known as sequestration, a series of automatic, off the just haircuts in the budget, in the discretionary budgets of the federal departments, and roughly half was to fall on the military. And roughly half was to fall on domestic discretionary programs, things like housing and urban development. 
the idea, not entirely crazy, was that Republicans would not want the sequestration to fall on the defense programs, so they would be inclined to make a deal. And the Democrats <clears throat> would not want the sequestration to fall on their non-defense programs, therefore they would make a deal to prevent the sequestration. That didn't happen. There was sequestration. Since the sequestration went into effect, it has the Congress has periodically come to agreements to ease the sequestration somewhat. Uh, so the, the full sequestration schedule that was in the original budget control bill, uh, the original budget control agreement, has not gone into effect. But part of it has. And so the Congress is debating the amount of sequestration relief that should be given to the relative buckets, to the non-defense bucket and to the defense bucket. Obviously, the Republicans want more of the relief to go to the defense bucket, and the Democrats want more of the relief to go to the non-defense bucket. Yeah, so that's one of the problems. And by the way, I want to take a digression because uh, you mentioned that this whole sequestration machinery was concocted as something of a poison pill, where they, they predicted, ah, well, this is going, we, we know how this will fix things, and they were wrong. And there, there's actually a, a pretty significant history of senators being too smart for their own uh, purposes, uh, uh, a really important one um, in federal law uh, is back in 1964 when you had a lot of racist Southern Democrats trying to uh, put the kibosh on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which is the single most important civil rights law ever uh, to pass Congress. Um, I'm not going to remember his name, but one of the Southern uh, Democrats stuck in uh, sex as another protected category where there could be no distinctions uh, supposedly, uh, by sex. And he was quite confident that this was going to, once again, because the Southern Democrats had been, had been blocking all civil rights legislation for years, that this would be a poison pill that would destroy, uh, that would destroy the bill, and it did not. And that has now uh, currently causing all sorts of controversy um, uh, on countless other things, transsexuals and bathrooms and more, much more. Um, but anyway, well, there's another big thing besides defense and non-defense spending that's that's uh, they're well, getting embroiled. And, and, and it goes to your idea of poison pills. Uh, so, for ostensibly constitutionalist reasons, the president has has uh, the president and the attorney general have decreed that the previous president's <laughs> decree that a certain class of illegal immigrants, the deferred action for childhood arrivals. People or DACA, DACA DACA, DACA in mm -hmm. Washingtonese, um, <clears throat> which is intended to be people who were brought to the United States as children did not willfully break the law, uh, but are living here in violation of the law uh, to give and but have otherwise made a life here and are more or less productive members of society. Uh, President Obama ruled just by by fiat, that they should be given permanent and an indefinite relief from deportation. Uh, President Obama and Attorney General Sessions have decreed— President Trump. President Trump, excuse me, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, President Trump and Attorney General Sessions. President Obama and Attorney General Sessions would be a very weird universe. Um, um, but uh, President Trump and Attorney General Sessions have, uh, have concluded that that exceeded President Obama's authority— and to be fair, he had been saying that for some years before he and, did it. And to be fair, President Obama had been making noise about that he couldn't do that, so he needed Congress to do it for him, and then when Congress didn't do it, he did it anyway. Um, 
certainly not crazy to believe that President Trump and uh, Attorney General Sessions are correct. Um, that that Cong that since the executive cannot give this relief, uh, President Trump has said that he would like the Congress to come to an uh, come to a compromise and agree on a deal that would give at least some of his border security, his you know big beautiful wall. Uh, border security policy, and then give relief to the uh, DACA recipients through legislation. Uh, we will discuss this, the, the background of <clears throat> the immigration fight a little bit more next week, I think. Yeah, that will be our, that'll be our focus, I think, next week. And uh, so for there are a lot of folks who care passionately about that, and we'll, yeah. go, we'll, we'll do a good deep dive we'll next do, we'll week. Do a, good, a good deep dive next week, but on the surface, but just as a surface matter, uh, the left wing of the Democrats uh, are threatening to shut down the government unless a so-called clean DACA passes. And in Washingtonese, clean means it's just the relief all by itself with nothing else. Uh, you know, and it, you can see how kind of slick the language is because, you know, even President Trump in his little negotiation, the little televised negotiation they had the other day, uh, you know, he wanted a clean bill that also had security, <laughs> uh, which, you know, tells me that he doesn't speak Washingtonese, which is one of the more refreshing things about him, as I say, as a usual critic. The uh, well, it it will certainly be interesting to see if uh, how that goes down with Americans in general, uh, but um, uh, the. Real question, of course, is what uh, for you to put on your crystal, uh, put your crystal ball in front of us for a moment. What do you think the most likely outturn outcome in the short term of these fights? Are? Uh, I suspect Congress will engage in its usual behavior of punting everything, and it will punt for a month or two. There will be another short. There will be another short-term CR, which is what we're currently operating under because they just punted it from December. <laughs> Yes, the uh, uh, to to govern is to choose is an old uh, bit of to wisdom. To govern is to choose. When you choose, you choose against some people who are very angry and vote against you in the next election, and uh, therefore Congress does not often like to choose. Yes. Um, well, uh, I said at the beginning uh, of the broadcast about how uh, these interesting squabbles that we get every year or at this point every few months— um, uh, where the whole talk is a government shutdown and cliffs. Uh, it's been a while since the cliff metaphor yeah, has been, been used. it's been a while but, since there was a cliff. But anyway, cliffs and shutdowns, um, those are exciting uh, to talk about, but they don't really deal with the true drivers of what the problem is uh, with the government uh, being able to, to deal with its budget the way that a family at home has to deal with its budget. So uh, let's, let's dig a little deeper and go into... Uh, the the real problems uh, that are uh, the sea underlying this froth at the top. Sure. Uh, the you know you mentioned uh, the metaphor of a of a household. Uh, right now, because the public likes their taxes to be low, but the government to do lots of things and give them stuff. Uh, the rather than you know, the national debt itself is not necessarily bad. If you're investing for the future in productive assets, you take out a loan, 
you know, that's, that's a defensible financial decision. It's like taking out a mortgage. You know, the, the more Keynesian economists will say, oh, this is, this is an investment. We're taking out a mortgage. National debt doesn't matter. It does become a problem if you're using a credit card to pay off your credit card and to pay off your Sears card. And as more and more of the budget goes from the discretionary appropriated uh, the things that the government, the things that we think of when we think of the government doing stuff, building roads, providing a national defense, uh, having national parks, the, the more that it goes away from that, which is more kind of the mortgage stuff to the paying old people stuff, which is more the credit card stuff, the, the, the sort of the justification for borrowing all this money uh, kind of starts to, starts to melt away. The intellectual justification for borrowing all this money seems to melt away. Uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, the government, the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, projects, uh, projected at the beginning of last year that the, the national debt held by the public uh, is going to double in the next 30 years uh, to the, po the point where right now the outstanding debt is less than the economic production in any given year. It's going to be more in 2047 unless something changes. Uh, and, of course, I think there's, a, there's also a moral uh, – there's both a practical question of at some point, as we all know, people who borrowed and borrowed and borrowed and then things collapsed uh, in households. Oh, no, my seventh credit card didn't pay off my fifth credit card. <laughs> yes. So we, we all know there's, there's a practical question, but there's also, of course, the moral question, which is uh, to me that – this also is an uh, this is a redistribution of wealth, as our friends on the left like to say it. Uh, and what it's the redistri redistribution here is between those people who are enjoying the money and the goodies uh, currently, and the people who will have to pay for them, which is the children which and grandchildren of the people around at the current time. And actually, uh, uh, I have to say, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth was asked about this a few years ago, uh, and he made that very obvious moral point that you know if you're living beyond your means. Um, and then you're expecting someone else to uh, to pay for it for you. Um, that's uh, living in a and, fantasy and, and world. We can, and, and, and we can, you know, if we want to get really sullen morosity, uh, you know, the birth rate is down below replacement. So there are going to be even fewer workers taking than we thought. That we thought there were going to be fewer workers taking care of more retirees. There are now going to be even fewer. <laughs> That's right. In, uh, in fact, it would seem to be that we can't get. We won't go any further. <laughs> this we'll keep. We'll keep going on the the, the current budget issue. But uh, it's a profound problem that Western uh, Western democracies uh, are giving them voting themselves more and more goodies, and yet having fewer and fewer babies to pay for those uh, goodies down the road. America is. A bit better off than uh, most of Europe, which has really collapsing birth rates in most cases, almost all cases. But uh, but we don't have replacement birth rates here, and there is no way that you. It, it, it's since it is essentially a Ponzi scheme. The the number the number of re, of retirees per per productive worker, worker. Uh, was I believe at the beginning of the Social Security program was something like twelve to one, and it's now less than three. Yes. Uh, the other thing about Social Security at the beginning was that the you couldn't get a penny until you were 65, and the average man, who was, of course, the 
strong majority of the workforce at the time, uh, died before then. Um, that will work, um, but it won't work the way we have it's, it now, where it, you have it, twenty it, or the, thirty it's years. The question of a, you know of a term life insurance policy versus a you know guaranteed annuity. Uh, yes, started out as a term life insurance policy, and now it's <laughs> yes a little a little bit more than that. But but uh, well, the um, uh, the tax reform bill. Uh, unfortunately, though it has uh, some nice features to it, it isn't helping the problem, is it? The, uh, you know, I, I like the tax reform bill. There's a lot of good in it, but all that, you know, nothing is, there is no such thing as a free lunch, and the not, the no such thing as a free lunch is that it's probably going to worsen the deficit. And when I say probably, I mean, like, there's a 95% likelihood. Uh, all, whether, no matter whether it's the Congressional Budget Office, which uses a more statically score, doesn't factor in very much economic growth, or even the Tax Foundation, which factors in a comparatively optimistic uh, economic growth feedback, the, the, the judgment is the same. The deficit, is prob- the deficit in the amount of debt is probably going to rise. One estimate uh, suggests that it could increase the baseline debt, the baseline holdings of total debt uh, by about 6%. Um, you know, we want a low, ta- you know, want a low tax burden. We want competi- our businesses to be competitive, uh, but we're not going to be able to do that if we don't try to get the entitlements of Social Security and Medicare under control. And speaking of Social Security and Medicare, uh, those are major spending programs here in D.C., and therefore there are major influencers uh, trying to make sure that they are not touched. Uh, so uh, tell us about a few of the, uh, the uh, can't even say particular at this point. Let's just start with, with uh, the, the, let's not t- worry about the species, about well, we the, can, but the uh, genuses. Right. Of, uh, you know, since we're, tar- since we're talking about old people, let's start with, old, let's start with the association ostensibly representing old people. Uh, the American Association of Retired Persons, AARP. Uh, if there is a single mobilizing force against uh, a single political mobilizing force against any sort of entitlement reform, against any sort of uh, small government principles as it affects the social, the sort of social welfare programs and entitlements, it is AARP. Uh, when then House Budget Chairman, now House Speaker Paul Ryan, was advocating for uh, premium support reforms in Medicare, uh, AARP was running ads against him, uh, and even as much as, as much as they may be representing their members, there also is some reasonable belief that they are profiting from the current system. Uh, they, offer an insu- they offer insurance products uh, that essentially rely on Medicare being structured the way it is. Uh, so they have a, a double incentive uh, for this, and they, they have a, they have a double they have a double incentive. And you might even I mean this is a, uh, a classic case of what many people would call the swamp, because uh, they're getting dues from their members by saying we're going to protect you in every possible way, every last one of you, no matter how well, well off and, you and, happen well, to be. Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be, you know, I think a lot of AARP members are AARP members because they get fifteen percent off their, you know, ro- uh, their motel stays on their on their vacation in in South Carolina to see the grandkids and all yeah yes. yeah they, or or to, or to or to go see the grandkids but the, on top of that they also have that, their own are, insurance business they, they have their own insurance they have their own insurance business on the side and on top of that all the people who remember who have signed up 
for non-political reasons who have signed up for uh, for the the perks unknowingly are funding the political agenda of what is a substantial liberal political player. That's, and just to give folks uh, some sense of what a 800-pound uh, elephant we're talking about here, uh, in the most recent tax filings for AARP, uh, they are a billion and a half year operation. And billion and a half dollar per year, I presume. Yeah, yes, dollars per year. And to about $2.4 billion in assets that they're sitting on. So, uh, you know, if that were a multinational corporation, left-wingers would be up in arms uh, about it having powerful influence in Washington, D.C. Uh, so it would be nice if we could all be consistent and, and, uh, and object to that <laughs> as, a, as a lobby group. Um, and I do want to say, since we're on the topic of, the, of uh, Social Security and, and pensioners, you know, obviously at the time in the 30s when Social Security is created, uh, I'm pretty sure it was under 10% of Americans ended up with pensions uh, at, at their jobs. So this was sort of a substitute for that. This is the federal government going to give everybody a pension. And, um, uh, and I, one can understand how that, the, the appeal of that. But, of course, now pensions are enormously different and, and better, first of all, far more common. And the government in programs like 401ks that you know, for instance, we have at our company and, uh, and countless other companies do, um, they have significant benefits to what ARP is def- to the to the entitlement that the ARP is defending. Um, uh, one of the supreme ones is that they're inheritable. Uh, if I die tomorrow, my family will get all of my 401k. Which and, has been which has been productively none of your invested. Social security taxes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Whereas they won't get any social security. And by the way, again, to, to touch of uh, left wing hypocrisy on this, uh, what groups are hurt the most by that? Uh, well, the groups with lower life expectancies. So if you're a black man, uh, paying a lot of probably paying more in many cases, paying more social security taxes. Pay- payroll taxes probably your high. Yeah. Un- un- unless you're exceptionally unless you're exceptionally uh, well off. Yes, yeah, your, your payroll taxes are the core of your federal yes, tax Yes, you're pouring money into this system, uh, and you may see hardly any of that money back, and you will see uh, your family uh, will be stranded because they, they, they're not going to get it. Whereas if uh, that money instead went into a 401k, uh, it would be invested uh, productively, and it would be, so it would be growing, and it would be inherited by, uh, by your family. So it'd be nice if folks who care a lot about the disparate impact on different races and ethnic groups uh, were paying well, attention. Sure. And, that, and that was the idea back in the mid-2000s when then-President George W. Bush uh, proposed a private account sidecar to Social Security. Uh, and of course, that was ruthlessly opposed by the AFL-CIO labor union and the groups that it mobilized uh, most prominent was probably the Campaign for America's Future, which is now part of the left-wing people's action uh, community organizing and labor union organizing uh, network. One of these, you know, Matryoshka doll-type coalitions that uh, generally, generally the left set up, where there's a local group and it's part of a intermediate national group, and then there's big national convening that has the convention where Senator Bernie Sanders comes and speaks. And it's kind of hard, unless you really study this stuff, to realize that 
this group is part of this network is part of this network. I can tell you where you can find out exactly how to disentangle that messy web uh, of influence, and that is influencewatch.org. Uh, uh, if you go to both the People's Action Institute, which is their 501c3, and the uh, People's Action uh, uh, affiliate, which is at C4, and you'll also find out that they are funded uh, by the Democracy Alliance, which is the George Soros-founded uh, cabal of, of left-wing donors. Well, it's, I, mean, I mean, Soros is part of the Democracy Alliance, but it's actually the Taco Bell heir, Rob McKay, who is the... Uh, who is the who's a member who's the, of the Democracy who, Alliance? Who is a who, well? He's not just a member; he is the brains. He, mm -hmm. he was it was him and his political consultant. It was their idea. <laughs> yes, and we should give uh, to give uh, credit of sorts where it's due. Uh, the name People's Action harkens back to one of the groups that was dissolved or well merged that, yeah, into this into uh, conglomerate, uh, previously known as National People's Action, and they were an especially notorious left wing activist group they're they're the they're the nasty guys who would show up on who would show up on the on the lawns of people's suburban houses with buses of seiu guys uh you know in one case allegedly terrorizing the guy's children when the guy wasn't even there yes at the uh, uh it was it was a bank of america lawyer. it was just a random lawyer for bank of america yes as i think they were uh, like uh and and they and they would and it would have gone off with no controversy whatsoever, except that the guy's neighbor was Nina Easton, the uh, who I think was writing for Fortune at the time. So he was lucky, quote unquote. <laughs> um, well, uh, in addition to uh, AARP and uh, and the People's Action uh, Network, there also are government employee unions who. Uh, all of whose workers work for government, and they like to keep government big. I mean, th uh, goodness, if you if you reform Social Security so that uh, in the kind of ways that we've talked about, where you'd have uh, people's money invested and growing and inheritable by their children, uh, if you did that, you would need fewer people at the Social Security Administration and very, similar you, places. You, you, very, you very well might. So, and you would be taking away ultimately the power and authority of the government, and you would be taking away. Uh, you know, if the more that people saw that their returns were coming from the private market rather than from the largesse of the government, they might, you know, start to think that, you know, maybe small government's a good idea in principle. Uh, so needless to say that the federal employee unions, the American Federation of Government Employees, the National Treasury Employees Union uh, are not fans of any sort of reform to public spending in any fashion. And in the case of the uh, AFGE union, uh, they're not really fans of uh, honest accounting, even internally, are they? Uh, yeah. By Based on the Department of Labor has an office, the Office of Labor Management Standards, where you can go look at unions' reports. And one of the things that the Office of Labor Management Standards does is it investigates union corruption. And based on the investigations that the Office of Labor Management Standards has conducted, uh, the AFGE may be the most corrupt union in the United States by the number of officials and employees that the, o the Department of Labor has had to prosecute, which in the last couple years has been about 20. Yes, they, uh, they, they put the Teamsters to shame, which is an impressive accomplishment. Uh, I know they, put, they put the Teamsters to shame in numbers, not necessarily in scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, there is that. Um, uh, there's also the National Treasury Employees Union, uh, which similarly has a, a poor reputation and uh, which has been 
uh, well, we're currently investigating. We don't have anything to report yet, but we're investigating uh, along with our friends at Judicial Watch uh, the question of whether the IRS employees, because of course the IRS is part of the, tr of the Department of Treasury, where National Treasury Employees Union is, is active and powerful, um, trying to see if the lowest learner IRS scandals uh, have been uh, in any way connected to the NTEU yeah, if they, union. If they, were, if they were abetted or if they were direct, you know, if there was any direction from that, from, from that, uh, that organization. Yes, and uh, as a, a friend of mine points out that the uh, NTEU's general counsel uh, got herself a different government job in the office of, uh, of uh, special prosecutor. If I remember, am I getting my alphabet soup right? Um, it's, office of it's special counsel? Office of special counsel, pardon me, which is uh, essentially the federal government's own office for whistleblowers. So if you're uh, a government bureaucrat and you want to blow the whistle on some bad guy, uh, that's where you would go. The idea that the general counsel for a union that represents uh, the person that you may be whistleblowing against would have that job is, uh, is impressive, but, uh, but that was what happened. Uh, well, there also are some folks on the other side trying to fight for uh, some government reforms and, and, uh, and a less out-of-control spending and debt-growing government. Uh, who would those be? Well, obviously you have uh, the sort of, you know, kind of your ideological conservatives uh, in terms of funding. Uh, just, to pick, just to pick one example, the Searle Freedom Trust, which is a, one of the major uh, conservative funders, uh, gave a grant publicly disclosed to the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is the state-level uh, conservative free market uh, Trade group, you trade, might say. Uh, not, not, not trade group, <laughs> quite right. More, more think tank. More a uh, more, you know. They well, they are a membership organization. They are, they are a membership organization, but I believe they are a five hundred one c three, and and they help develop state level policy. Uh, and the Searle Freedom Trust gave them money to work on state on state pensions. Now, if Social Security, Medicare pensions for all old people are why the federal government is doomed to bankruptcy. Uh, Public employee pensions are why your state is doomed to bankruptcy in the fullness of time. Or if you're Illinois, already bankrupt. Yes, and <laughs> plus we should add that local governments, there are examples of local governments that have and already gone bankrupt. Local governments that have actually gone to bankruptcy court. <laughs> yes, because of their inability to pay their government union workers. Yep. Uh, all of the bennies, all of the nice pensions and, uh, and uh, health benefits uh, that they have been handed again in the, the classic the time problem. You know, I'm I'm a city council member. I'm a, I'm, I can award you all kinds of future bennies, and then it's somebody else's problem. Five, ten, then, fifteen years. I, down I could I could either give you a raise, pay it out of current revenue, and have to because, raise taxes because, 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 on my because voters. States and cities, states and cities generally have a have a balanced budget requirement, I, and not printing presses for money, and not printing presses for making making inflation. Uh, you know, I have to either take, you know, cut service, you know, cut other services, or I have to raise taxes. And if I raise taxes, then I will be thrown out of office. Uh, so instead, I'm going to promise you perpetual money forever in the future when I'm no longer on city council. Um, and again, it's gotten so bad that even some center and center left funders, uh, perhaps most prominently the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, uh, have gotten into this pension reform space just again because the problems are so severe uh you know lauren john arnold foundation has funded uh, the brookings institution which is kind of the big 
center-left think tank in Washington, D.C. They funded the Pew Charitable Trusts, which is a left-of-center... now, uh, pr- public charity, although it, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it began life as there's a, a long private and confusing foundation. His, there's a long and confusing history of the Pew Charitable Trust, much of which is discussed on Influence Watch. Yes. Um, uh, but it is now a, uh, a center-left advoca- uh, advocacy and research group, uh, and Lauren John Arnold Foundation has given the money to work on pension stabilization and pension reform. Yes. Uh, and, and and there they, are I mean, even some states where they've had a significant they, they, influence they had, on they reforms. Had, they had some success in in Pennsylvania, getting the Democratic governor and the Republican legislature there uh, to make at least some modest reforms. Yep. And for that matter, a uh, a certainly left of center Rhode Island uh, has done some of this, but that's because it was already so corrupt and and near bankruptcy that even a left wing Democrat. Uh, realized, well, the money has just run out. We're going to have to do something. Yeah, it's, a, it's, and, a, it's either it's either we make these reforms or the core functions of government, which we like because we're liberal Democrats, are going to have to go away, and that's going to be a problem. Yes. Well, well, and again, I would say that, that this is a moral argument that if you think the government has significant responsibilities to help people, then causing that government to go bankrupt for people who were awfully well off in the first place, as government workers typically are, and who have probably paid little— Certainly those who have made it to retirement and are on a defined benefit pension. (laughs) Yes. Well, and especially since they—unlike most folks, like you you and I pay 30 percent of our insurance. That's a pretty typical thing in the the private sector for our medical insurance. Uh, Typically, government worker unions have negotiated it, so they pay pretty much nothing to their pension or to their— uh, or to their uh, medical benefits, even when they're working, much less when they're retired. Um, and uh, I, I do want to have a quick sidelight on the on the Laura and John Arnold Foundation's pension reform work. They got in trouble a few years ago, people may remember, because uh, NPR started running stories that were shockingly balanced on the problems of government worker pensions, and that work was funded by the Laura, Laura and John Arnold Foundation, which was then viciously attacked for manipulating NPR. And then when the story actually came out, it was that NPR had come to them looking for the money to do this, and the Arnold Foundation was uh, said, my gosh, they and, told and, us and, there'd be funders on all sides. And, 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 of, <laughs> and, of, and of course, why would, why would the left immediately suspect that, that, uh, that the Laura and John Arnold Foundation had, I guess, quote-unquote, bought the coverage? Well, that's because the... Liberal funders have gone uh, in in our last episode when we discussed the ongoing dem- the ongoing demonstrations in Iran. We noted that the Plowshares Fund, which was organizing the echo chamber to support the Obama administration's appeasement policy, uh, had given one hundred thousand dollars to NPR, which then gave favorable coverage to the administration's appe- then the former administration's appeasement policy. Yes. There are many left-wing uh, funders of NPR, and I'm sure that that may just perhaps influence. Uh, uh, NPR's coverage. Entirely possible. Uh, well, uh, give us a, sh- uh, a quick wrap-up. Uh, that's about all our time for this week uh, about what uh, what to make of the, the budget fights. So it's... The, the long-term budget picture is awful and probably will so remain. Uh, any influencers trying to uh, bring to the public's attention and bring to the public's concern that there is a long-term fiscal uh, unsustainability uh, face a couple of major problems. Uh, One, the general human desire for, I want my candy now and I will deal with the consequences later. And also uh, very large influencers like AARP and the AFL-CIO who 
want to keep the current system of candy now and consequences later. Um, the immediate budget fight will probably be punted, either be punted or be resolved in a way that's just kicks kicks it down the road for for several months. Uh, you know, no fundamental change. You know, I would be shocked if there was any fundamental change in any direction, certainly on budgetary matters. Uh, and if, but if it does stall, if there is uh, a a partial government shutdown, I suspect the reasoning would not be uh, anything budget related. I think it would be uh, the extraneous items that are being debated around the budget. Uh, most probably immigration, which is why we will return to that topic at a future date. <laughs> That's right. Next week uh, is the dig- deep dive on immigration. Uh, and that is our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, know that we broadcast a live video version of the podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube. You can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.